This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. Thank you for joining us for another episode. We are past Labor Day. We are just about into the fall and 2020. The first votes of 2020 are not too far away. We have a great episode for you this week. I told our guest, you know, we we won't talk for any more than 15, 25 minutes. Max, I said, Max, uh, I looked down at the timer in the middle of our conversation and uh, saw that we were at 45 minutes. And so really good conversation with our guest, Caitlin Beatty. Caitlin Beatty, the a former editor at Christianity Today, the author of A Woman's Place, a wonderful book, and uh, now doing acquisitions at Brazos Press and being a public voice on so many issues, including uh, including uh, evangelicalism and politics. And we're going to hear from Caitlin sort of from her perch about what has surprised her about the last three, four years of American politics what she sees coming when it comes to evangelical political engagement, uh, and then also just how, as an individual Christian who, you know, is trying to navigate these issues like all of us, how do we deal with the strain and the tension and the the difficulties of this political moment? I, I'm really grateful for the uh, for the conversation that we we had together. Before we get to the interview with Caitlin, I do want to run down a, a few updates. First, Joe Walsh, the former congressman, has announced that he'll be joining William Weld, former Governor Weld, as as a candidate for the Republican nomination. We'll see, for, really for both these candidates, but especially for, for Walsh, how real these efforts are, if they're actually going to be trying to get on the ballot, or if this is more of a a media kind of thing, but but Joe Walsh created some buzz. My personal view uh, is that Joe Walsh is not anywhere near the ideal Republican opponent for Donald Trump. Pete Weiner wrote in the New York Times his view on why, and 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 mine is mine is pretty similar. But it's still going to be something to watch. Joe Walsh, if nothing else, is capable of drawing attention uh, to himself. And uh, certainly uh, that will get under Donald Trump's uh, skin. So I think that's going to be worth uh, watching if just for sort of seeing whether Trump can be antagonized, not whether uh, Joe Walsh is going to be the Republican nominee. Let's see what else. Senator Gillibrand uh, has dropped out of the race uh, after not being able to make the debate stage. Uh, We've seen uh, the, the field uh, the debate for later this month is set. There will be ten individuals on the uh, on the debate stage. Governor Steve Bullock uh, will not be uh, making the stage. Governor Jay Inslee did not make it. He's dropped out of the race. Governor Hickenlooper has dropped out. Uh, he's uh, going to be running for Senate. Uh, it looks like in Colorado, and so the field is 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 shrinking. Senator Michael Bennett also did not make the debate. He plans to stay in the race. And there was a very uh, interesting, compelling article by a friend of the uh, podcast, Edward Isaac DeVere, over at The Atlantic uh, on Michael Bennett's race and would urge people to to read that. And so the lineup for the September 12th debate will be Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, Beto O'Rourke. Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, Andrew Yang, and Julian Castro. This debate will be the first time that all four of the uh, top front runners will be on the stage at the same time. Something that 
uh, listeners of this podcast will know, I, I think uh, is a bit overdue. I, I, I'm, I think voters need to see these candidates going up against one another, and I'm glad it's happening in really in just a week. And so that will be a key pivot point. That's another reason why I'm going to wait until the next episode to kind of give a, a, a state of the race uh, update from my perspective. A couple other things I want to cover. First, we've been talking on the show about Kamala Harris, and her, her numbers continue to just plummet. She is now pretty steadily in single digits in national polling. Her statewide polling hasn't really uh, picked up. Her campaign now is starting to seem a little erratic and trying out a bunch of different tactics that don't seem to me to uh, you know add up to a, a strategy. We're going to have to see if all this activity does contribute to you know a masterpiece does contribute to some some full picture we're not seeing right now. Uh, but her campaign continues to be in trouble. Again, I would just say imagine if I mean, I think the the busing attack again, and not to relitigate this, but uh, I, I said on the last episode, I thought the busing attack was a misguided just just the attack itself. But imagine if she had that still in her holster for a debate like we're going to see next week, uh, as opposed to using it in the first debate of of the election cycle of, of the presidential primary, and then. Speaking of candidates who are trying interesting uh, things to get to relevancy, uh, Beto O'Rourke has decided that he's going to swear his way to the presidency. After uh, apologizing to a voter publicly and committing to not swear uh, after he dropped the F-bomb in his uh, in his losing speech, in his concession speech after losing his Senate race, he is now reversed on that vow and pretty intentionally and pretty transparently decided that this is a way, sort of dropping F-bombs at campaign rallies and on CNN, on live television on CNN, is a way for him to convey voters that he is serious about gun control, apparently in a way that several of the other candidates that have you know really extensive policy recommendations on the issue, but just haven't been dropping F-bombs in their public speeches, um, apparently that is the measure now of commitment, uh, that, that you're just so angry you can't, you can't help yourself and, and control uh, your tongue. I, I think it's a big mistake. I think it's a big mistake for Beto's uh, campaign, for, for Beto's personality, which was one of the main reasons why he caught so much um, momentum in that race against Cruz was, A, he was running against Ted Cruz, so there's that. But but B, he presented himself as an aspirational candidate. Now, cursing, dropping F-bombs on the campaign trail uh, isn't necessarily contrary to being aspirational for, for some voters. For many of the faith voters who were attracted to him, even though he ran a fairly secular campaign. I think out of you know the top you know really eight candidates, he's probably running the most secular campaign out of all of them, with maybe the exception of of Bernie. But at least Bernie is going to events like the Islamic Society of North America's uh, event in the last uh, in the last week or so. Bernie's going to lose voters who were drawn to him because of this. Unfortunately, in my view, because so much of what Beto, I'm sorry, Beto will lose voters. So much of what Beto has done over the last several weeks has been positive, and I praise him on Twitter for it. I think it's supremely powerful thing that he would go to a a gun show in a red state to talk with voters about his proposals around around gun control. I, I even like the fact that he answered a question directly about. His desire to have mandatory buybacks of assault rifles and, and just say flat out, like, I'm not going to hedge. I'm going to be honest with voters about where I am. These are all really positive, positive things. I, I also have to call out and register my disappointment that his campaign and, and Beto have decided that this is a productive way 
to make your case for leadership, particularly when you're going up against someone like President Trump, who has so degraded our public discourse, who's crass, and who is unfit for the office simply because of his lack of decorum, his lack of respect for the office. And so it was really disappointing to see this from Beto. I I don't think it's going to uh, work for him. I actually think it undermines sort of the frivolity of swearing to relevance, actually undermines what I had publicly praised as a a show of purpose and conviction in other aspects of his reaction to what to the shooting in El Paso. So we'll we'll, we'll watch that. Uh, maybe I'll be wrong, and and maybe voters are looking. Maybe there's a Democratic analog to the Republican show of support for someone who was just expressing anger and just sort of emoting uh, how they felt in a way that was unmediated by the burden and responsibility of the office they were seeking. And and I don't mean to compare the insane antics of uh, Donald Trump and sort of lying about crowd size and all that with Beto dropping a few F-bombs. But that's the thing. It's not the vulgarity that is necessarily even the issue here. It's the fact that this is strategic, And so what does it say to have a candidate who is instrumentalizing vulgarity in the way that Beto appears to be doing? If he wasn't, then as we discussed on the Church Politics podcast this week, uh, he would have apologized on CNN as opposed to being asked about swearing and using the vulgarity he was being asked about on CNN itself. That's... That's the sign that this is that the campaign had discussed this and, and viewed it as a fruitful way forward. All right. Again, just one last time. After the next debate, we're going to I'm going to give a overall state of the race overview. So each episode, we talk about things that have happened uh, oh, uh, since the last episode. But some of the feedback that we've received is. Okay, like where does all of this add add up to? What's the state of the race? And so that's what we'll do. That's what we'll do in the next episode. All right, when we get back, I'm going to introduce Caitlin Beatty and really looking forward to sharing this conversation with all of you. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. We have a conversation that I've been waiting to have uh, about evangelicalism in the Trump era and the myriad of ways that evangelicalism is both impacted by politics and impacting politics. And there are a few guests who would be better at sorting through some of this than Caitlin. Caitlin is an acquisitions editor with Abrazos Press, a division of Baker Books. She previously served as managing editor of Christianity Today magazine, Uh, Caitlin is the author of A Woman's Place, A Christian Vision for Your Calling, In the Office, The Home, and the World, which was a Simon & Schuster book. Caitlin has written about faith, politics, and culture for The New York Times, The New Yorker, and Religion News Service, among other outlets. She lives in Brooklyn, New York, and you can learn more about Caitlin at CaitlinBeatty.com. And I'm going to spell it out for you because you should learn more about her. It's K-A-T-E-L-Y-N. B-E-A-T-Y dot com. All right, here is our conversation with Caitlin Beatty on the Faith 2020 podcast. Caitlin, welcome to the Faith 2020 podcast. So great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am so looking forward to this conversation. You know, Caitlin, you're someone whose whose voice I've respected for a a while, both, you know, in your days with Christianity Today and now the work you're doing. I'd love for listeners just to kind of situate the conversation. I would love for listeners to get get an idea of your background and how you came to write and be in the space that that you're in kind of what led you to a position where you know you're 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 a voice and and you have a pen that a lot of people look to particularly for understanding evangelicalism in this country 
Yeah, well, I will try to give the 45-second version. Um, <laughs> so I I would say I grew up um, in my later teen years in an evangelical home in the Midwest. Um, when I was younger, uh, my parents would say they were probably nominal Christians, but we, the three of us all had a kind of classic born again experience at this Methodist church when I was about 13. <clears throat> and so we were really steeped in evangelical culture of the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, I went to an evangelical college had a wonderful experience there. And then shortly after graduating, I started working as a copy editor at Christianity Today magazine. Um, this is, of course, the magazine founded by Billy Graham in the 50s and has historically been the flagship publication of the evangelical movement in the U.S. and, and now more globally. And so I ended up being at Christianity Today for almost 10 years, um, and I, so, of course, that gave me a bird's eye view of the evangelical movement because that was our job, was to cover trends and conversations and beliefs among evangelicals. Um, CT has prided itself on being, I would say, centrist. Um, it It is not politically overtly affiliated in any way. I mean, of course, it's a Rorschach test. And so people could read it and think, oh, this is so liberal. And other people right. would say, oh, this is so conservative. But that's kind of the the blessing, really, of being a centrist, um, is that you make everybody mad. Um, and so, yeah, then I, I left in 2016. And this was all like not planned at all from my <laughs> end. Um, my last day at CT was October 8th. And I was really just leaving because I'd been there for 10 years. I had a book coming out. So I wanted time to talk about it and promote it. And yeah. just felt like, you know, it's just time to, to try something else. And that day that I was kind of packing up things in my office and saying goodbye to people, um, someone came to my office and said, oh, did you hear what Donald Trump said? Did you hear that news? And it was about the Access Hollywood recorded right. conversation. Yeah. And, you know, my first thought, I mean, very selfishly was, I'm so glad I don't work here anymore. So I don't have to figure out how we're going to cover this. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> like, uh, and also, of course, very disturbed and also thinking I'm, this kind of confirms other things that we've heard about this this person um, during his campaign for the presidency. But I left. And then the next week, like my first week of being unemployed, I was on CNN, <laughs> like speaking for evangelical women. And how are evangelical women responding to this? This uh, Access Hollywood tape um, was doing radio interviews, helping like the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation understand what was going on in the United States. So I, I felt like I was thrown into political conversations around the 2016 election in a way that I wasn't expecting at all. And I would say I was also more personally invested in that election because I felt it was clear to me at that time how much was it that I, I really felt that there was actually a lot at stake. Um, and you could say, well, that's, that's actually a form of privilege because there's always a lot at stake in our politics. Um, but I, I definitely felt, you know, more, more engaged and more, um, and, and so like, you know, more upset and kind of scratching my head and, um, you know, thinking about, and I'm sure you've discussed this with plenty of guests, the like 81% white evangelical vote. And of course, it's not all evangelicals. And of course, it's only the white evangelicals who voted. It's still it's still like a pretty strong um, number. And I think a lot of probably evangel people who grew up in the evangelical church or people who identify as evangelical who are our age are left like, wow, how do we make sense of that? Um, and so... I have been trying to make sense of that for the last few years, but, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this more. I also, you know, three years 
after the election, I feel tired. (laughs) I feel, um, I feel tempted to kind of disengage because it's keeping up with what's happening with the, the, you know, the new election and thinking about, Oh, there's a whole new, there's a whole more year of this <laughs> and all the different issues that come out and all the different headlines and some weeks are worse than others. It's, it can be really tempting to just shut it down and say, you know what, I'm just going to go about like, you know, doing my job, taking care of my family, paying my bills, just trying to get by without having to think that deeply about things going on in in the broader world. And I don't feel like I can do that as a Christian, but I also understand the temptation that that presents. Yeah. So you've laid out like a really interesting timeline and I kind of want to kind of want to take it uh, sort of as you, as you laid it out. Uh, it, it, and so kind of my, my question for you in response to that, uh, my first question to you in response to all of that is, it, it seems like even from your, you know, your perch at CT, even with your, you know, all of your adult life having been sort of in evangelicalism, it sounds like you, like there were, th- there, there were things that happened during the 2016 election and, and maybe since that have surprised you about how evangelicals have engaged, but what, what would those uh, how would you describe sort of the things that have caused you to scratch your scratch your head? Mm. I grew up hearing in the church and from my parents and in Christian communities more generally that when we're thinking about our top national leaders, that character is a really significant factor in determining our decision about who we support. And, you know, when, when George W. Bush was elected and then reelected, I'm thinking about my parents um, and my parents, I'm sure they appreciate being proxy for like a whole evangelical movement, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) They're really great people, but (laughs) you know, they, I think they were happy. They were more than happy to support George W. Bush, like putting aside, kind of policy and 9-11 and the educational policy. Sure, like yeah. they liked this person because I think he really came across as an honest, genuine person who like cared about his family, was faithful to his wife, yeah. um, didn't cuss, you know, like right. it carried himself with a kind of dignity and honor that is, I think, befitting the role of president. And so a lot could be said about the ways in which President Trump does not embody that that kind of personal character. And so one, it's just been a little bit head scratching to think, wait, I thought you said character was important. I mean, even putting aside like casinos and hanging out at the Playboy mansion and, you know, being, having an affair during, yeah. I mean, all of that stuff, there's just a lot of mess, I think that isn't hard to find in president Trump's personal history that seems to fly in the face of what evangelicals really care about in their leaders yeah, and and Caitlin, p- part of my sense of this has been, especially for sort of uh, yeah, evangelicals that are maybe like forty and under, is it is not so much. Well, it, it's both um, head scratching and wondering what happened to those values and and that sort of idea in the present moment. But I think what's been almost more unmooring at a personal and at a like a church level has 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 been folks questioning whether they meant it 
a decade and a half ago. Like, like, like it's not so much like uh, j- just uh, uh, what happened. Like, I think people can kind of understand, well, you know, evangelicals have disliked Hillary Clinton in general for, for decades and they would have, you know, voted for anyone over that. But it's, it's the fact that they were so willing to not just like uh, explain or rationalize the vote for Trump, but that they seem to completely disregard um, there, like you said, the the idea that that the character matters, which was one of like the the primary contributions of political evangelicalism, you know, over the last thirty years. But, but do you sense that it's not so much, or or it's not just, you know, where did those values go in the moment? But as I talk with young evangelicals, it's like maybe they didn't really mean any of it in the first place. Like, like maybe maybe this. Um, what can I trust from, you know, my, my, my upbringing um, when it can be so easily discarded? What, what else would they be willing to discard if, if it was convenient? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do think it creates a problem of, of trust when your leaders in the faith or forebearers have told you this thing that they really believe in for your whole life. And then you grow up and they're like, "Mm, but not in this case, (laughs) then it, then it kind of, yeah, it does erode trust. Um, And of course, I think a lot of evangelicals our age, that, that was a painful layer of the outcome of the 2016 election was how it reshaped, reconfigured how we thought of, leaders of the faith. Um, I think that's part of it. I also think, though, it's really worth talking about the ways in which a lot of white evangelicals in this country apparently feel that the elite culture or culture created by mainstream media is against them. Um, It doesn't understand them, doesn't want to understand them. You know, um, traditional, if if you believe that like traditional bedrock views about human sexuality have changed drastically and you are now seen as a bigot by your neighbors, like that creates a a self-understanding of being beleaguered and being marginalized and even persecuted. Um, And so if you have this political leader coming along and saying, I'm for you, I get you, the other, the other team doesn't care about you. They, they want to ridicule you, but I'm not going to do that. I mean, I think a feeling of fear and loss of power often, not just in politics, but in general, leads us to compromise on things that we, on principles and ideals that we once held. And I think that describes, apparently, how a lot of white evangelicals felt in the, in the 2016 election. I mean, I, I do think it's interesting that when I was working at Christianity Today, CT is based in the Chicago suburbs in Wheaton. And so there are a lot of like young, educated, evangelical Christians um, in that bubble. And in my conversations, I, I didn't know anybody who said they were voting for Trump. Now, it's possible that some of them made like a last day decision to vote for him or just didn't want to tell me. <laughs> um, but truthfully, I don't think that, I think there's an interesting regional division here as well. Like the Northern Yankee evangelicals and the quote unquote evangelical thought leaders, like, I don't know, in the Midwest and farther North might think about these things differently than evangelical leaders in the South where a certain kind of either cultural Christianity is more the norm, or it's just like taken for granted that if you're, if you're a Christian, you vote Republican no matter what. So, yeah. So, so do you, you know, so, so you said you've kind of spent some time sort of wrestling through this. I know you've attended, you know, as I have some of these, you know, 
evangelical gatherings of sort of sorting through the rubble and and trying to chart a path forward and you know there's been a lot of that going on uh, you know from a from a political perspective especially you know with 2020 on the horizon you, have you seen sort of significant changes in uh well first sort of how evangelical leadership is thinking about politics and then has any of that sort of trickled down into uh, the congregation and into the lay level i mean i do think it's people know robert jeffress people know uh, like jerry falwell i do think one thing that holds up is that evangelical leadership on average is much less supportive of Trump than the lay people, which I think might surprise uh, surprise a lot of folks who aren't evangelicals who would think that, oh, like the people leading the congregations, they must really be rallying uh, all this all this up. And there certainly are pastors that are sort of politically lined up behind Trump. But but I found like if you if you did a and National Association of Evangelicals has done this. Like if you pulled pastor evangelical pastors broadly, I would I would think support for Trump might be over 50%, but like 10, 20, 25 points below where uh where where white evangelical support has been for Trump. Um, you know, at, at the general level. But but yeah, so 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 have you seen any changes? among leadership? And, and do you think like in 2020, every election cycle, there's like, oh, you know, evangelical women are going to go for for Beto or, you know, uh, uh, young evangelicals are finally going to, you know, rise up because they care about the environment. Um, like, are you seeing any potential like, like trend lines that might suggest a different evangelical interaction with, with 2020? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say I sense maybe among the evangelical leaders that you just referred to people like like pastors and leaders of institutions and evangelical organizations, yeah. umbrella organizations, I sense a sort of quietism. Um, mm-hmm. Not that they're not ever talking about political issues, but... I think the reaction to Trump as a person has really quieted down because one, it can be exhausting to respond to everything he says, but also if you're a leader of an organization or a church where, you know, a, a majority of your congregants are supporting Trump and then you have a very, you have a very aggrieved minority who does not support Trump, how do you bring up Trump without causing division and conflict? And so it it seems for those leaders, I think, better just to not directly talk about politics. Um, of course, you know, we, we do have Oh, what's it called? What's the amendment, Michael, where you can't endorse politics? Oh, the Johnson, the Johnson. Yeah. Amendment. yeah. <laughs> Which you know, Trump promised he would do away with that hasn't happened yet. But you know, right. I think there can also be a hesitancy among pastors to directly bring up support, like overt support or critique for a president or his or her policies because of that church state separation. I So like just reflecting on Christianity today, which I continue to follow and look to for information and kind yeah. of advice. I, I, I think I can count on one hand the number of times that CT has directly talked about the president over the last few years. Yeah. Now they are covering policies. Like I think CT does a really good job of talking about immigration policy, how it's affecting like Christians in Latin America and uh, refugees coming in from overseas and how they're affected by particular policies, but there isn't there isn't a direct response to the person of Trump. And honestly, I mean, going back three years, we did run an overt op-ed <clears throat> against Trump, right, like a month before the election, yeah. that 
like did did very well in terms of readership, but also got a lot of pushback from readers right. who just felt like, why are you attacking this person? The other person is so awful. Like he's pro life, um, and so I I think thinking like as an editor there, um, it just is risky. To, to talk about Trump or talk about him too much because you don't want to alienate your base. But you also, I think the challenge is that you're also expected to lead your base. And sometimes leadership requires saying things that people who follow you don't necessarily want to hear. And of course, how you say it and when you say it is really important. But I I hope that evangelical leaders and institutions aren't abdicating the responsibility for moral clarity and leadership in a time when it might cost them some of their support. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's 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 tough. I you know, I I get the sense that s- some are are seeing the pushback that they get when they take it head on and so they're trying to find sort of roundabout ways to sort of maybe like attack the issue from the side. And I'm just not sure. I'm not sure people are, I'm not sure the people they're trying to influence are connecting the dots when they try to sort of, you know, in a second, third degree way. (laughs) Let's say we have a political leader. (laughs) How might we hypothetically respond? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like, like teaching principles or kind of um, overarching ideals. That's right. Can you trust the people that you're leading to connect the dots <laughs> to say, oh, this yeah. might actually apply to a very particular situation right now? Yeah. I just think that's like a a critical question. I've, I've compared it uh, and, and I want to uh, – we're – so we're nearing the end of our time, and I, I want to talk a, a bit more about something you raised earlier, but I'll, I'll just say briefly, like I thought of it as, as sort of an analog or a parallel to like the faith and work, the faith and vocation conversation, where at, at some point, just Christian institutional leadership came to the understanding that no matter how they tried to get at it through like principles and talking about the fruit of the spirit, like evangelicals just did not see how God had anything to do with their work, with their nine to five. And so they decided like the only alternative was to, to, to take it head on and to start institutes for faith and work and preach entire series on vocation and write books on faith and work as, as, uh, as actually I wasn't planned, but as, as you did. Um, and so I, I felt strongly over the last three, four years that that same kind of effort is, is needed, um, uh, for us. Now, of course, the Southern Baptists have ERLC. You and I are both big fans of the Center for Public Justice. So some of that infrastructure, uh, is, is there, but, um, but, but I think much, much more is needed. Yeah, I would just, I, I think you're exactly right. And I think that the ways that, the evangelical community has been affected by the 2016 election and just political engagement, thinking about politics as people of faith. It's not that like Trump created this crisis in the church is that, that, that support revealed a deeper crisis of how, how few of us know how to connect our beliefs about Jesus and about the kingdom of God with the city, uh, not the city of God, the city of man. (laughs) Like, I don't feel like I ever received any sort of political discipleship growing up aside from, aside from, you know, every four years knowing that it was wrong to vote for someone who called themselves pro-choice. I mean, that was truly like thinking about systemic, racial justice, thinking about education reform, thinking about immigration reform, even thinking about things like like local civic engagement. Like I just never understood that that would be connected to the belief that Jesus is Lord. And so now I think we are 
as a church, we're having to play catch up to develop a robust uh, Christian framework for political engagement so that we're better prepared and wiser moving forward. The last kind of topic I want to discuss, and <laughs> it's kind of a downer, but I think we're both going to work to to leave people on a on, on not such a downer. Well, I don't know that I will. You may- I'm just like technical, <laughs> no. But you probably so, will. You'll you'll uh, you'll help. We'll we'll see. We'll we'll see. But what what you said really resonated uh, resonated with me, and I think a, a lot of others, which is. Um, just this feeling of exhaustion and sort of futility, and I think almost a sense of dread, not just around 2020, uh, but certainly around like, certainly included in that is this idea that our lives are already saturated with politics. And right, and it's important to note the politics our lives are saturated with it's not entirely, you know, wonky concern for the disenfranchised. Like that's not what is bombarding us. <laughs> like what's bombarding us is the president uh, it being reported that the president wants a new hurricanes and that, you know, so I, I think, I don't think people are necessarily exhausted with worrying about uh, concrete policy uh, to help those with need. I think what's burdensome and and exhausting for people is how much other nonsense our politics throws in our way that we have to wade through in order to get to that like common good. Uh, And so to just talk with me about, you know, as someone who, as he said, was kind of like thrown into not just speaking and writing about, uh, about uh, uh, politics, uh, but, someone who was helping institutions think about evangelicalism and, and uh, our current political situation, just talk to me about sort of where, where you are now that you, and this is a tough question, but it's one I ask myself all the time. Like, do you feel like your do you feel like your efforts bore fruit? Like, like, do, do you feel like the work is justified by the return? Oh gosh. <laughs> Um, well, I think it was naive for me to think that my five minutes on CNN would change millions of people around the world. (laughs) But my mom was very moved by it. Um, That's one at a time. One heart at a time. Um, so I, I don't inter, if, if we, if evangelical leaders and people in kind of, with a public platform speaking on issues of faith and politics. If, if you go into your tweets thinking that your tweets are going to create like a massive change in how your neighbor thinks about politics, then you're probably naive. Um, But I do think that it's, it's important to keep, um, it's important to keep speaking to the ways that um, some of our current policies are not honoring human dignity, go against uh, core Christian values about the dignity of every person, um, are, are perpetuating decades of injustice, are moving us back. I mean, I, I think that there's a way in which you have to just say the thing because it's faithful and not necessarily because you see a groundswell of change. And I think, and I think especially of people our age when, you know, they, they heard their whole life, the character matters. And then so many of the, the leaders of our, of our faith, decided in 2016 the character doesn't matter as much as we thought it did that can create a lot of cynicism and mistrust but if there's even just like a handful of leaders who are willing to go against the grain and to 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 critique certain policies 
and attitudes when appropriate, I think that that helps people realize, okay, I don't, I don't have to support the current president to be a faithful Christian. Um, I think that that, yeah. that does help. I mean, I, I mean, just anecdotally, I have heard from lots of people who are, who have been really grateful. Um, but you know, I think if our goal is, I I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Michael. I know we don't have that much time. If I were a betting woman, I would bet that Trump gets reelected in 2020. I know you hate to, to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that partially is why I feel exhausted is because it just feels like, well, yeah. does any yeah. of this, ma- like we're all freaking out and we're all trying to say right. none of this is normal. And we've been saying that for the last three yeah. plus years. And when it comes to election day and polls, th- will it really matter? And I don't know. And so that's why, Christian political leadership has to be bigger than who's in office every four years. Like if if your goal is just getting the quote unquote right person in office, you're going to be disappointed because then you realize that even when you get a great person in office, you still have these intractable problems that go deeper than just who's in the highest office in the land. And that's not at all an, an argument to be politically disengaged, but I think it, it has to, it has to give us a broader, longer view of faithfulness in the public square than what happens every four years on election day. No, I I think that's so, I think that's so important uh, that, that view of, you know, that this is about faithfulness is something that can, that keeps me going, even though, you know, sometimes it's, it's, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's really difficult. And then I also, and I'm sure you've seen this in response to your book and your other writing. And I've seen, I've seen this, there there are, um, especially when you go to evangelical uh, and, and Christian colleges um, and, there are just so many people uh, looking to see what they were raised to think the faith in public ought to look like actually represented in public in this moment. Um, and so I, I do think, I do think that that's, uh, that's really critical as, as to 20, as to 2020, uh, you that there's a lot to, to, to say, and, and, you know, this podcast, we're kind of sorting it out week by week. You know, the, the one thing I will say that's relevant to this conversation is I think another layer of what's exhausting about this is the fact that we, well, I, I won't speak for you, but like, there are things I disagree with the democratic party on. And I, and I, you know, I've worked in the party. And so like, so like I always have to have the point of view, like if there are things that make me uncomfortable and, and, you know, and it was my job then for folks who either don't know it so well, or, or just don't have the, the, the like emotional ties to it that, that I do, like there must really be some, uh, some some conflict. So I'm I'm always mm-hmm. sort of keeping that in mind, and it makes it exhausting when uh, you can't. There isn't like mm-hmm. a perfect option uh, uh, that you could just sort of without caveat mm-hmm. sort of point people to. And then the other side of that is the other option is doing a lot of things that are the exact opposite of what you would want to do if, you know, A, you want to win an election, but B, but B, especially if you want to give the people in our cohort, like an easier path. On. So, you know, just, just, uh, uh, just last month, you know, uh, someone sends me, I, I get an email at 1130 at night that the DNC, the Democratic National Committee quietly voted on um, uh, on a on a resolution, and I don't mean quietly in like a like a weird way. It's, it just wasn't like mm-hmm. the highlight of the meeting. Um, but they voted on a resolution, uh, like 
expressing the importance of the religiously unaffiliated that was that was written by the Secular mm-hmm. Coalition of America and the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Uh, and, and it's just like, yeah. like really, guys, like 14 months out from an election that this yeah. is this is what we're doing. Like, like, mm. like really, Beto, that your, your strategy is to, is to curse your way to the White House. Like that doesn't give us the, the right. contrast with Trump that we need. He's cool. you know? he doesn't. Um, and so that's just exhausting. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I just think, that, you know, that's Oh my gosh. Of- I can't imagine being Michael Ware and just seeing like the complete blindness on so much of like from so many of the Democratic Party leaders to continue to do things and signal things that basically tell religious people, which by the way is like a very large swath of the population, that like they don't matter or their values don't make any sense or are retrograde or yeah, I, I like. I'm sure you've talked to other people about like faith outreach. Are there any are any of the Democratic uh, campaigners have any of them hired like a faith outreach director? So Pete Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg is the first. Cory Booker has announced that uh, like the, there's a job posting, and then we've heard that that uh, Joe Biden's campaign is is looking at hiring mm-hmm. a national person as well. Some of the campaigns have state level, uh, depending on the state, um, uh, faith outreach, faith outreach folks, but um, but. but but yeah, it, we're definitely, at, you know, from a political perspective, the party mm. is way ahead of where they were in 2016 mm-hmm. in terms of thinking about faith outreach, mm-hmm. but also nowhere near yeah. where Obama was yeah. in yeah. 2008. Yeah. You know? And I mean, in that, even if it's totally calculated and cynical and really just, you know, like even if none of these people care at all right. about yeah. faith or people of faith, which I don't think is true, but like, let's say they did, like, just purely from a pragmatic strategic standpoint like they have a lot to lose by not honoring and paying attention to christians in this country <laughs> yeah yes that, that's right and that's just like a you know that's just like a raw you know it's so funny to hear you know so-called like you know data-minded strategists who will extol like the importance of all these like narrow tactics and and you know, if we turn out, but then when it comes to faith, you know, 70% of Americans are, are Christians, like 73, 75% are religious. And somehow like the math is supposed to work without like attending specifically to religious people as religious people. Uh, and it's just, just a weird thing that, that uh, sometimes you feel like you make one step forward and take two steps back. I think a lot's going to come down to who the nominee is. Um, you know, I do think someone like Cory Booker is someone who spent a lot of time at a policy level working with evangelicals, working with other faith groups. Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, you know, Pete Buttigieg uh, talked a lot on the show about his faith rhetoric and the, the way that he kind of vacillates between like a very positive framing and a negative framing. But there, there are some some options out there. The, the and maybe this is where I'll close, which is um, you know, one thing that we've discussed on this show, and and that I that I think the resolution, the DNC resolution, even speaks to, is uh, we're now seeing like the mainstreaming of evangelical critique, where at a, at a at, and Trump, you know, I think there were a lot of people who. Always wanted to. I'm saying, I'm not saying like like Trump by himself like the uh, created a wave of anti-evangelical, uh, anti-religious hostility, but I do think that because you had so many high-profile evangelicals, particularly like columnists and uh, sort of gatekeepers, critiquing the support for Trump that that they saw um, we're, we're kind of in this new season where um, 
I mean, every week there's a column either from an evangelical or like we saw in the New York Times last week from Timothy Egan, like someone who's not really religious, um, writing, you know, 1200 word columns about why, like, why religion is awful, why evangelicalism is awful, all the awful things evangelicals do to which, you know, like some of it happens, some of it deserves to be attended to. But, um, I guess the last question I'd have for you is um, just your view on how the political has has affected and is affecting the the faith the faith itself and and the importance of having you know integrity between the two, not just so we have a better politics, but but so that there's a faith to. uh, to, to leave and, and hand off in as, you know, uh, institutionally as good a shape as we can to the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a real tension um, <clears throat> as Christians engaging politics that um, that I think centers on where we place our hope. And I think... Yeah. You know, even though we we hear and see headlines about evangelical support of Trump, I think there are probably a lot of Christians in this country who are more or less like politically disengaged, um, either who didn't vote or who voted for Trump but didn't put that much thought into it and don't follow what's happening now. Um, and I think some of that attitude comes from this belief, which is which is true that. Look, our, our our ultimate hope lies in in Christ and Christ's kingdom, and we're waiting for a kingdom that is beyond this world. And uh, I think that's true. I think where that becomes twisted is to think about that or believe that, and then assume that the things that happen in this life and this world don't really matter. Um, and so. The flip side of that and the thing that I find myself falling into is to focus, to, to really believe that like things in this life and this world really matter. I mean, at the very least, because I am called to love my neighbor, my neighbor exists now, <laughs> my neighbor oftentimes is suffering I am called to help alleviate that suffering if possible in this life. Like how we live our lives matters. But I will admit that I don't think about heaven that much. Mm. (laughs) Um, Like I, I don't really think about what it means to place my ultimate hope in a, a, a world beyond yeah. this one um, because I'm, I'm so committed to the belief that this life and this world really matter. But how do you, how do you believe that without really, I think putting too much stock or too much resting too much hope in the political yeah. cycle um, and, and kind of convincing yourself that, because this I, I think is the mistake that the religious right, has made for decades and perhaps the religious left has done the same thing or is doing the same thing, which is to kind of operate from this sense that if we just get our person in the white house, if we just get the right people in the seats, then things will be fixed. And I think that, uh, that doesn't take seriously enough, like the, how ingrained and how deeply Mm. entrenched, systemic sin is and and that anybody we elect is going to disappoint us on some level like even if we get our guy or our lady into the white house they're going to do things and say things that are destructive um that don't enact the the vision that we have for heaven on earth um that's not to say that there aren't better or worse candidates for people to be in the office but like so those that's the tension that I feel now in my own spiritual life. And I, I think for the church to thrive 
in the coming years and decades, we have to find a way to talk meaningfully about worldly engagement, political engagement, making the most of our lives here on earth, um, while also keeping a vision of the kingdom of God, where all things will be made new, firmly in the center um, of everything that we do. And I don't know what that looks like day to day, but I think some some kind of tension between those two uh, core beliefs is is where we should well, be. Caitlin, one of the things that has been helpful uh, for me is to identify and pray for and consider myself, um, you know, a supporter of and uh, you know a co laborer with. Uh, uh, those voices that have come up that I think are helping to chart uh, a a way forward, um, particularly for evangelicals, Mm. but for the country generally, uh, I think we share uh, a lot of, um, you know, I I think you and I both admire a lot, a lot of the same people and, and uh, like, um, uh, you know, appreciate, uh, some of the same people. Um, I also consider you to be one of those people. So I would just like to close by thanking you for joining the podcast and thank you for your public leadership as exhausting as, as it can be. And, you know, I, I, I think a challenge for our generation, like generations before is to figure out that tension between, um, between uh, the the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, uh, uh, as as best we can, and to do so, as you said, faithfully. So, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being with us, and we hope to track with you uh, as this uh, as this presidential election, uh, you know, continues for the next fourteen mm-hmm. months. Caitlin, I, I hate to say, but but we have not oh, been able man. to change that over the course of this conversation. <laughs> No, that yes. that one thing remains. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And I, I just want to say, and I hope you have people in your life like saying this to you all the time, Michael, I think the way that you weigh in on political issues is exemplary, because like you, you offer critique and reflection where necessary, but you never let it become about like personal attack. And I am learning how to do that still. (laughs) So I I just, I think that you really model like grace and truth in how you engage people and issues. And that's a a good thing for us all to, to learn from you. So thanks, Caitlin. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I am grateful for uh, Caitlin for that conversation. She shedded light on just the um, intense tension that I think many people are feeling. I don't think this is unique to evangelicals. I think it's just a symptom of the moment. But to have Caitlin sort of be so honest and really diagnose some of what's going on uh, was was helpful. And it will help guide us uh, as we move through this podcast. All right, folks, that's all I have for this week. I would urge you, as always, leave a review on iTunes. It's been so great to see some of the reviews that y'all have been leaving and uh, some of the uh, feedback I heard from a uh, retired foreign service officer uh, this last uh, week. I heard from college students. I've heard from uh, folks working on the Hill. It's just so great to hear the diversity of of people who are listening and benefiting from this podcast. Again, you can hear from me more regularly throughout the week, including uh, I posted for subscribers my thoughts on a DNC resolution on the religiously unaffiliated that I, that I really think that you should uh, check out if you have the opportunity. And you could do that at Reclaiming Hope dot substack dot com again that's reclaiming hope dot substack dot com and if you subscribe there you'll hear from uh, Melissa my wife and I uh, several times throughout the week with really comprehensive analysis and news roundups so that you can 
sort of focus your day and pay attention to politics, you know, and email and get the news that you need to be up on faith in 2020 and public policy and the way that it all intersects uh, without it consuming your life. That's kind of that's kind of the hope here. The hope is not to add one more thing that, you know, you got to read or listen to. Uh, the hope is to uh, curate bright voices from across the spectrum, uh, bright voices with incisive analysis, and adding my own voice to the mix to help you make sense of it all. Uh, so, so, so that's all kind of organized for you. Thanks again for listening. This debate on September 12th is is, is going to be something. You, you get the sense that the race has been a little a little stagnant now, and that. Uh, the media is hankering for uh, a change. Obviously, some of the candidates need a boost. And Joe Biden continues to be strong in the polls. Uh, but if you talk to some of the campaigns, uh, they believe his his support is soft. And as uh, as people tune into the race more and more, which they which they do after Labor Day, uh, that the numbers will change. We'll have an opportunity to see if that's the case. Uh, in the lead up to and the reaction uh, to this debate. You know that the Faith 2020 podcast will be here for you with debate reaction, breaking down what it all uh, has meant for the race and keeping you up to date on how the campaigns are engaging religious voters and how religious voters are reacting and trying to influence them. There's only one place for all that. It's the Faith 2020 podcast. I'm your host, Michael Weir. Thanks for listening. Faith 2020 is produced by Pottery Studios and brought to you by the Anne Campaign. Learn more about the Anne Campaign by visiting annecampaign.org. Our producer for the show is my man, Bo York. And our guest this week was Caitlin Beatty. And I've been your host, Michael Weir. I look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of Faith 2020. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.